Good morning, Christ Community Church. All you people who remember to set your clocks forward. See, when the 11 o'clock service comes, people will arrive thinking they're coming to the early service. Yeah, but thank you for coming. We welcome you, those who are joining us right now in DeKalb and Blackberry Creek and Streamwood Bartlett, our other campuses besides St. Charles. And Blackberry Creek folks, as you join us in Aurora right now, we want to explain the floor, okay? Your floor is all torn up, and that's because we're in the process of giving you a brand new floor. And over the course of the last year, thanks to the generosity of the next campaign at Blackberry Creek, we have uh, given you a bigger parking lot, we've given you brand new uh, office facility for your staff. We're expanding your lobby area. There's a new hub being built for high school and middle school students, and your floor is going to be replaced. So let's give it up for Blackberry Creek. Yeah. Uh, just uh, one other announcement before I get going. At Christ Community Church, we've got hundreds of people following a daily Bible reading schedule called Bible Savvy. It's available in hard copy at resource at any one of our campuses, or you could get it on your phone app. And some of you who started to follow it, you got discouraged as we went through an Old Testament book. I want you to know we just finished 2 Samuel, but we're starting the Gospel of Luke. So if you gave up, get back into it, okay? Because the Gospel of Luke is the story of Jesus. It's the perfect way to ramp up to Holy Week in three weeks. So, And if you're a parent, make sure that your kids have one of those epic journals and you're reading daily from God's Word in the Gospel of Luke, getting them prepared for Good Friday and for Easter. And we're about to dig into God's word right now. So pray with me. Let's ask God to be our teacher, to open our hearts and minds to what he has to say to us. Would you pray? Uh, Lord, thank you for your book. Thank you for inspiring people to write down the very words you wanted written down to tell us about who you are and what you have in store for our lives and how we could spend eternity with you. And so we take your word really seriously, but we need your spirit to help us interpret it. So and apply it to our lives. So right now we're asking, please be our teacher in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Moran is an Israeli Jew, grew up in Israel in a secular Jewish home. Uh, when he came to that age of mandatory military service, Moran joined the Israeli army. Uh, one day he was hanging out with some of his army buds and a Palestinian suicide bomber blew himself up nearby. 22 of Moran's friends were killed. Moran hated Arabs, hated Arabs. When he finished his compulsory military service, he decided to emigrate to the United States, moved to California, uh, began to medicate his depression, his anger, his hurt with alcohol. Uh, one day, a friend said, hey, Moran, come to church with me, a church like Christ Community Church. And some quest, spiritual questions began to arise in his mind as a result of that experience. He started reading the Bible. And shortly thereafter, coming to the conclusion that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Savior, God sent the world, Moran surrendered his life to Jesus as Savior and King. But he still hated Arabs. Okay, Tas was raised in a Palestinian home in Israel. Uh, he was raised to embrace Islam. In fact, later on, he made a couple of pilgrimages to Mecca. And when he got to be a young man, he joined the PLO with the intent purpose of killing as many Israeli Jews as possible. 
Uh, when he finally got tired of the killing, he too decided to emigrate to the United States and he moved to California, where he started a restaurant that became very successful. And there was one customer by the name of Charlie, always visiting the restaurant, who loved to engage Toss in spiritual conversations and tell him about Jesus and encourage him to start reading the Bible. So Toss began to read the Bible and eventually he surrendered his life to Jesus as the Savior, the King of his life. And shortly thereafter, he was praying one day, and he started praying that God would give him a love for Jews. He couldn't even believe the words as they were coming out of his mouth. Not long after that, a friend invited him to a conference in L.A., a conference that was intended to stir up conversation between Arabs and Jews. So he went to this conference not knowing what to expect, and one of the speakers was this dude named Moran, telling a story of how a Palestinian suicide bomber had blown up 22 of his friends. And when Moran finished his presentation, Toss walked up to him and he said, Hi, I'm Toss. I was PLO. But Jesus Christ changed my life, and I love you. And the two men embraced, and they became best friends. Their story is told in a one-hour documentary film called Forbidden Peace. You can find it on YouTube, very interesting documentary. And the reason their, their peace, their friendship is forbidden is because their very identities are hostile to the notion of peace or friendship. You know, they have hostile cultural identities, hostile religious identities, hostile family identities, but Jesus Christ changed their identities. Welcome to week four of a six-week series we're doing on personal identity, a series called True Self, True Self, Finding Your Identity in Christ. Our textbook for the series is the New Testament epistle of Ephesians. I want to give you a chance to start looking for Ephesians right now, okay? Ephesians chapter two is our text for the day. Again, rattle your pages noisily so I know you brought a Bible, all right? And each week of the series, Pastor Clayton and I are choosing one word to sum up the passage, a one-word identity marker, a one-word identity marker, and today's identity marker is united. Say united with me. United. When we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, Jesus not only unites us with God, he also unites us with other people. Now, that's not the way it is before we surrender our lives to Christ. That's not the before picture. I told you last week that one of the things the Apostle Paul does five times in the epistle of Ephesians, five, five different passages, he paints a before and after picture of those who choose to follow Christ. This is who you were. This is what your identity was formerly before Christ, and this is who you've become. This is who you are now. This is your new identity in Christ. And today's passage is another one of those before-after pictures. So let's start with the before Christ picture. If you're filling in your outline, and I hope you'll follow along in your outline, uh, you could find it on your uh, cell as well on the app. Uh, the first point is that we were alienated. Okay, that's who we were before Christ. We were alienated. I want you to pick it up in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, and follow along as I read. And by the way, if this passage sounds uh, a little bit familiar, it may be because a couple of years ago, uh, in a series where we covered the topic of racism, we used this particular passage to study that. 
And uh, we're, we're looking at it a little more broadly today, but we dug in, in deeply a couple of years ago. So verse 11, I'll read just the first couple verses of today's passage. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, what is the one word identity marker for today? Call it out. United. United. So when you surrender your life to Christ, he unites you in relationship to God and begins to unite you in relationships with other people. But before Christ, Paul says, you were alienated. Now, we're going to take a look at the alienation first from the perspective of you were alienated from others. And and in Paul's day, what was really big was the alienation between Jews and Gentiles. Paul is writing this epistle to a group of Christ followers in the bustling seaport of Ephesus. Most of these new Christ followers are Gentile believers. Now, that was a bit unusual because up to this point in time, Christianity was pretty much a Jewish movement. Okay, most of the followers, early followers of Jesus had come from a Jewish background. And the gospel spread, the good news about Jesus spread, and now Gentiles were embracing Christ. But this was creating problems because they were being made to feel like second-class citizens. They didn't have the pedigree. They didn't have the religious background of their Jewish brothers and sisters. And in fact, their Jewish brothers and sisters were looking down on them as coming from the uncircumcised. You see that in verse 11. They were the circumcision. Now, if you, you know your Old Testament history... You know, the way back at the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, God calls a man by the name of Abraham to follow him, and he says, uh, you you and your descendants are going to be my chosen people, my special people, and as a sign of your chosenness, he gave him, you know, the sign of circumcision, circumcision. Now, you, you may be thinking, you know, why would God do that? Why would God favor one group over another group? Wouldn't that automatically lead to alienation? I mean, suddenly you got the chosens and the not chosens. You got the circumcised and the, and the uncircumcised. Though, believe me, nobody was standing in line hoping to get circumcised, all right? So why did God choose the Jews to be his special people? Okay, here's what we need to understand. God's goal was not to alienate other people. In fact, just the opposite. When God called Abraham and gave him the sign of circumcision, it was for the sake of setting Abraham's people apart for a mission. What was their mission? Their their, their mission was to let everybody everywhere know about the one true living God. In fact, God had said to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. you know, this is for all people. Uh, Unfortunately, Abraham and his people, as you read in the Old Testament, they neglected their calling. You know, they treated their chosenness as a matter of favoritism instead of mission. They they haughtily despised the people around them. When, When Paul wrote the epistle of Ephesians, Jews back then commonly referred to Gentiles as dogs. Dogs. One Bible scholar writes that many Jews... In Paul's day, believed the Gentiles had been created by God as fuel for the fires of hell. How about that? 
In fact, Jews were forbidden to help a Gentile woman give birth because that would mean another Gentile was being brought into the world. So as the Apostle Paul opens today's text, verses 11 and 12 that I I read to you a moment ago, he points out how alienated, how alienated Gentiles were from Jews. And not only from Jews, Gentiles were also alienated from God from God, from the one true God whom the Jews had been keeping to themselves. Look again at verse 12 that I read to you. There are five phrases, one after another, describing what the Gentiles had been missing out on because of their alienation from God. If you got your own Bible, you could mark it up. You could even number these phrases. Phrase number one, they were separate from Christ. Now, Christ was not a name in the first century. Christ was a title. It was the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah. But, but, but nobody was telling these Gentiles about a Savior, a promised Messiah, about a Christ. And so they were separate from Christ. The second phrase, you put a number two by, Gentiles were excluded from citizenship in Israel, verse 12. Israel was God's people, but Nobody was inviting them to become part of God's people. Number three, they were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. God had made all these promises, promised blessings in the Old Testament, but no no one had shared the promised blessings with the Gentiles. Number four, the Gentiles were without hope, and that was because, number five, the Gentiles were without God in the world. They had their pagan gods, but their pagan gods were false and powerless. And no one had told them about the one true God who could forgive their sins and welcome them into his family, who could change their lives, give them eternal life. So the Gentile Christ followers, to whom Paul was writing the epistle of Ephesians, they knew what it was like to at one point have felt alienated. Of course, all that changed for them when they heard the good news about Jesus and they surrendered their lives to him, and now they belong to God's family. However, they could still remember what alienation felt like B.C. They could still remember what alienation felt like before Christ. They could still remember, in fact, remember is an important word in the two verses I read to you a few moments ago. Verse 11 begins with, therefore, remember Verse 12 begins, remember. So Paul wants them to remember something. Uh, Interestingly, this is the only command in the first three chapters of the epistle of Ephesians, the section of scripture we're looking at during this series. This is the only imperative, the only directive. So it stands out like a blinking red light. This is really important. Remember, remember, remember what? So remember, remember what it felt like to be alienated before you surrendered your life to Christ. Now, what's so interesting about this command, friends, is you would expect Paul to say something like, hey, before Christ you were alienated, but guys, get over it. Okay, forget about it. Move on. But that's not what Paul says. He says, remember it. Why? Why would he tell us to remember what it felt like to be alienated from God and from others before surrendering our lives to Jesus. I've got no doubt that part of it has to do with the fact that when we remember our former spiritual lostness, it helps us appreciate God's love and his grace for us. Yeah, I remember my life without God. Oh, I'm so grateful to God for what he's done. But another benefit of our remembering, friends, don't miss this, is that it sensitizes us to those who still feel alienated. 
It sensitizes us to those who still feel alienated. That alienation may be a spiritual alienation. They're on the outside looking in on a relationship with God. It may be an economic alienation. It may be a social alienation. It may be a racial alienation. See, Christ followers of all people ought to be able and willing to understand alienation. We ought to get it because that used to be us. It used to be us before Christ united us to God and others. So how sensitive are you to those who feel alienated in your world? You know, are you attuned to situations where you're part of the majority, you're, you're part of the dominant group, but there are people right around you who are not? Let, let, let me give you a few pictures of what this might look like. Okay, when you're, you're seated in the high school cafeteria at your table of good buds who are all athletes, are, are you aware of the kid who just stepped out of the cafeteria line holding his tray looking for a place to park? And he's not an athlete. In fact, he plays clarinet in the school band. Do you notice him? Okay, when, when you're talking about labor and delivery stories with other young moms, which is something young moms have this habit of doing, are you aware of the woman right in your circle there who doesn't have kids? In fact, she may not even be married. If you're, if you're a guy and you're, you know, busting loose with buds, talking about what you're doing to your home, you're remodeling this, you're adding a porch there or a sunroom or what, are you aware of the guy in your group who doesn't have a house? He lives in an apartment. When you're hanging out with a cluster of coworkers who are mostly white, are, are you aware of the lone Hispanic in the group, the, the, the lone African-American employees circled up? I wonder what that feels like. When, when you're in your community group and you're delving into the Bible and digging out all these amazing insights and then praying in an eloquent way to God. Are, are you aware of the new member in your group who's still exploring the faith and doesn't, doesn't understand Christianese? When you're eating in a restaurant and you're devouring your food and you look right next to you and there's a table there and someone's needing to be helped with their food because of a disability, you aware of that? What, what must that feel like? It is so easy to alienate people. It's so easy to treat others as outsiders. We do it very unintentionally often. And other times we do it on purpose. But Paul says if you're a Christ follower, remember. Remember what it felt like to be alienated. That's the before picture. Here's the now picture, number two. Where are we now? We are reconciled. This is the now picture if you've surrendered your life to Christ. Harold Hughes grew up as a poor farm boy in Iowa. Uh, when he got to be military age, he joined the army. It was the time of the Second World War. He fought in some of the bloodiest battles of the war. So when he came home, he wanted to drown his memories, which he did in alcohol. Became a truck driver, was known for his profane language. One day he got tired of his drinking. 
And someone told him about Jesus Christ, a higher power who could change his life. And he surrendered his life to Christ, received God's forgiveness, God's power to change. Shortly after that, Harold decided to run for local political office, and he won. And that gave him the confidence a few years later to run for the governor of Iowa. He became Iowa's governor, ran two more times, three terms as Iowa's governor, before he became a senator from Iowa. Went to Washington, D.C., a very liberal, very democratic senator who was known as a champion of the little guy and as an adamant opponent of Richard Nixon, then president of the United States. Chuck Colson was Richard Nixon's hatchet man. Okay, Chuck Colson also served in the military as a Marine in World War II. Afterward, he got a law degree, eventually became part of the Nixon White House, and then was embroiled in the whole Watergate mess. And as he was being prosecuted, as he was on trial, his life was in shambles, and a friend told him about Jesus. And Chuck Colson surrendered his life to Christ. And then the friend said, hey, you want to come to a Bible study? I go to a men's Bible study on Capitol Hill. And so Chuck went with him. And the very first person he met was Harold Hughes, this really liberal Democratic senator from Iowa who couldn't stand Richard Nixon. And he's being introduced to Chuck Colson, Richard Nixon's hatchet man. And Harold was a little bit dubious about Chuck. And he said, so Chuck, we've heard that you've encountered Jesus. Tell us about it. And at first, Chuck was a bit intimidated, uh, but he got going. And the minute he got going, the room got quiet. And when he finished telling his story of conversion, there was a, there was a moment of silence when you could have heard a pin drop. Until finally, Harold slapped his knees, and he says, that's all I need to know. He says, you're my brother in Christ now. God forgave you, so I forgive you. And I love you as a brother. I will stand by you. I will defend you. I will be there for you whenever you need me. The group got on their knees, the Bible study group. They prayed, and when they got done praying, they stood up, and Harold and Chuck exchanged this huge bear hug. I mean, two men from very different, extremely hostile backgrounds. Formerly, they had been alienated, but now in Christ, they were reconciled to God and as a result, reconciled with each other. Now, let's go back. We're going to see this in the text in Ephesians 2. We left off at verse 12. Let's start reading at verse 13. Follow along as I read. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the laws with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility." He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. And for through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Wow. Paul tells his readers, go back to the beginning of verse 13, that although they had once been far away from God, they had been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. You see that? Verse 13. So, so Jesus had reconciled them, first of all, to God. Now, now, most of you get what Paul's saying here. 
But I want to make sure we all understand it. So I'm going to repeat something that you, you often hear at Christ Community Church. Okay, we, we got a problem. We're all sinners. We're all like Harold and Chuck, messed up. And the Bible says that, uh, unfortunately, when you sin against a holy God, when you pull apart from this God who is the giver of life, the source of life, you pull away from him and you die. That's the natural consequence for our sins. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. It begins with spiritual death. You die on the inside. No hope of a relationship with God. It eventually becomes physical death at the end of this life, and if it's not remedied, it becomes eternal death in the world to come. But God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to take the penalty we should have to pay. The penalty again is death. Jesus took the death we deserve to die. And then he was raised from the dead. And because he lives today, he's able to offer as a gift forgiveness, new life, a reconciled relationship with God to, to everyone who will surrender to him. You ever surrender to Jesus? Paul says by his blood, by his cross, he, he can bring you near to God. Well, with this amazing truth that if, if we'll surrender to Christ, we can be reconciled to God, it's even more amazing than we, we may have realized. See, surrender to Christ not only reconciles us to God, it also leads to reconciliation with other people. It leads to reconciliation with others like Harold and Chuck experienced. Go, go back to verse 14 where Paul explains how reconciliation works between Jews and Gentiles. Okay, look at the last line of verse 14 where Paul mentions the wall that Jesus destroyed. He calls it the dividing wall of hostility. You see that? The dividing wall of hostility because it once kept Jews and Gentiles apart. And once this wall came down, you know, people who had been at odds with each other were able to be reconciled. They were able to experience peace with each other. The word peace pops up three times in the verses I read to you a moment ago. They're able to experience oneness with each other. Used to be far apart, now oneness. The word one pops up four times in the verses I just read to you. So, so what was this dividing wall of hostility that Jesus demolished? Well, it was not a wall made of concrete slabs like the Berlin Wall that had to come down a, a number of years ago. What was this wall made of? Paul says in verse 15, gives us an explanation. End of 14, he talks about the dividing wall of hostility. How did Jesus take it down? Verse 15, by setting aside the law with its commands and regulations. Now, let, let me explain what Paul's saying here. Okay. God gave the Jews, his chosen people, in the Old Testament, all sorts of laws to follow. Okay, there were laws about animal sacrifices to take care of their sins. Okay, if you sin, to offer this animal sacrifice to pay the penalty. There were laws about how to set up a, a priest, how to choose a priest, who would then be your intermediary between you and God. There, there were laws about identity markers. How would you mark yourself as belonging to God? Well, there were kosher diet laws you had to follow and dress laws you had to follow and circumcision and, and so on. These laws became a wall around the Jews, a wall that separated them from all other peoples. The, the, the wall was actually symbolized by the layout of their temple grounds. Okay, the temple was set on a plateau. If, if you were a 
a Jew, you had access to that temple. You could draw close to it. But if you were a Gentile who wanted to worship the one true God, oh, they accommodated you. There was a courtyard for Gentiles, but it was far down the hill. It was separated by a number of stone walls. So Gentiles were kept at a distance. This layout, this temple layout was symbolic of the Jewish laws that kept Gentiles at arm's length. The laws were a relational wall. Following this? So, So how did Jesus destroy that wall? Well, he destroyed the wall by becoming the fulfillment of those laws. Once Jesus fulfilled the laws, the laws were no longer necessary. So those laws about animal sacrifices... You know, so that your sins could be paid for. Jesus died on the cross so your sins could be paid for. No need for animal sacrifices. Those laws about a priest serving as your intermediary between you and God, don't need that anymore. You could go directly into the presence of Almighty God, a holy God, as a sinner if you're forgiven by Christ. He opened up the way to direct access to God. All those laws about identity markers, you know, the clothes you're supposed to wear and the kosher diet and the circumcision, no need because now if you put your trust in Jesus, Jesus promises to give you his spirit to come live on the inside and that's all the identity marker you need. So Jesus fulfills, when he died on the cross, he fulfills all those Old Testament laws making them no longer necessary. And so he not only made it possible for people to be reconciled to God, he also tore down the wall that had separated Jews from Gentiles. And friend, now listen, this is what Jesus continues to do today when people surrender their lives to him. First of all, he reconciles you in relationship with God, but then Jesus tears down the walls that separate you from other people. Walls of pride. Walls of selfishness. Walls of anger, walls of discrimination. You know, you go back to verse 15. Let me read it to you again, starting in the middle of the verse. Paul says, Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Reconciles you to God, puts to death your hostility with other people. I I want you to imagine for a moment a triangle, okay, a little visual diagram here. And the bottom left point of the triangle is you, okay, or me. The, The right point, bottom point of the triangle are those people you're alienated from. Now, some of those people you're alienated from because of diversity issues. You're you're just so different. You're a different race. Uh, You're a different uh, in-group, affinity group at school. You're a different economic strata. Uh, You know, there, there are differences. But some of that alienation is due to the fact of wrongdoing, either yours or theirs. Okay, they've done things to offend you, to hurt you, to abuse you. Or they've done something so despicable you could never get along with them. Now, let's say you get reconciled. You surrender your life to Christ and you're reconciled to God. So as you move up the left side of the triangle, you're getting closer and closer to God thanks to Christ. Now, let's say somebody in that alienation group, okay, the group you're far from, one of those people surrenders to Christ and they start moving toward a relationship to God. What happens to the distance between the two of you? What happens? Call it out. It goes away. It disappears. It disappears. 
See, reconciliation with God leads to reconciliation with other people who got reconciled to God. You following this? Let, let, let me give you an extreme example of what I'm talking about. Rachel Denhollander. You recognize the name? She was in the news big time about a month ago. Okay, Rachel was the first female gymnast, Olympic gymnast, to out Larry Nasser, the uh, USA gymnastics team doctor who had been uh, systematically abusing gymnasts, sexually abusing gymnasts for years. It was an extraordinarily courageous move on her part to speak up because at that point in time, all the power brokers were behind uh, Dr. Nasser. She dared to speak up, and by the time the trial came around, there were over 150 victims who were willing to make statements to the court. And Rachel was the last one to speak. And what she said was so moving, it went viral on social media. Let, let me read it to you. She says, and she's speaking to Dr. Nasser in the courtroom. She says, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt we say, yeah, go get them. But she continues, so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Should you ever, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. Oh, my goodness. How could... How could Rachel hold out the prospect of grace and forgiveness to her abuser? Friends, what is more alienating than sexual abuse? But Rachel obviously has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She's experienced reconciliation with God. So she knows if the day ever comes when Dr. Nasser surrenders to Christ and is reconciled to God, she will be reconciled to him. Who are you alienated from today? You know, either for reasons of diversity or because of their wrongdoing. You know, maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's somebody you're sitting in the row with right now. Maybe it's someone at work, friend at school. You know, if you both surrender your lives to Christ and so you're reconciled to God, there is the possibility of peace between the two of you. There is the possibility of a oneness, a unitedness that you would never have dreamed possible. Just ask Harold and Chuck, right? <laughs> Who were we? The before picture, we were alienated from God and others. Who are we? If you surrender to Christ, you're reconciled to God and to others. Third, we can be joined together. We can be joined together. Now, I'm not a hockey fan. Uh, I, I don't understand the game of hockey. It looks like a brawl on ice to me. Uh, but I came across an interesting story in the sporting news uh, recently about hockey that brought a, a smile to my face. Two of the greatest players in the game today, in fact, they're both on the list of the top 100 hockey players of all time, uh, Alex uh, Ovechkin and Sidney Crosby. 
Alex plays for the Washington Capitals. Uh, Sydney plays for the Pittsburgh Penguins, two teams that can't stand each other. And it's also rumored that Alex and Sydney hate each other's guts. And if you've ever seen them play against each other, you could believe it. But, but here in the sporting section of the news, there, there are pictures of these guys posted recently, and they're smiling at each other, and they're talking to each other, and they're signing each other's hockey sticks. And you say, what's going on here between these two mortal enemies? Well, what's going on is that they had just finished for the second year in a row playing on the same team as teammates, teammates on the hockey all-star team. And so they'd been cooperating with each other and passing the puck to each other. And afterwards, one of the sports writers asked Alex, he said, so are you guys like buds now? And Alex said, oh, yeah, best friends. <laughs> we'll see. When we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ and we suddenly discover that our old pattern of alienation from others has been replaced by a new pattern of reconciliation. Friends, the transformation doesn't stop at a theoretical level. Oh, yeah, I'm reconciled with others. I get it. Now, it becomes very practical. We become teammates with formerly alienated people. I mean, we actually join together and we do things with each other, not hockey, but Paul gives us three snapshots of what our joint activities look like in the closing verses of today's passage. So let me read verse 19 and following, chapter 2 of Ephesians. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You're, you're fellow citizens with God's people and you're members of his household. And you're built on the foundations, uh, foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In Christ, this whole building is joined together, joined together, and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Now, did you catch all three snapshots in these verses of what our united activities with fellow Christ followers look like? See, instead of being alienated from others, we're now reconciled with them, and that means we join together in common ventures. It's not just theoretical. We're now doing some stuff together. Like what? Well, snapshot number one, Paul says, together we're God's kingdom. Together we're God's kingdom. Look at the middle of verse 19. He says, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. You're now fellow citizens with God's people. You know, you surrender to Jesus, you become a citizen in his kingdom, and he gives you a mission. The mission is to expand the boundaries of Christ's kingdom, to tell everybody everywhere about King Jesus and what he's done for them. And so you begin working side by side with other people in ministries that are getting the good news out, getting the love of Christ out. So practically speaking, that means if you're a Christ follower and Christ's community is your church, you find a ministry team to be part of, and you begin to serve side by side with people you may never have chosen to be friends with, but now you're teammates with them. You're, you're teammates as Kids World workers. You're, you're teammates as worship service ushers. You're teammates as care night mentors. You're teammates as go team participants. I mean, the strongest relationships built at Christ Community Church are built between people who serve on the same ministry team, side by side, serving King Jesus. 
Now, if you've never discovered your place of service here, let me again point you back. This is Year of the Volunteer at Christ Community. Let me point you back to our website, ccclife.org. Go to Simply Serve. We put together a portion of that website to direct you to hundreds of opportunities inside our church and through our community impact partners where you can serve with other Christ followers. It's not just theoretical, this reconciliation thing you begin to play hockey on the same team. You get it? Good. Here's a second picture, second snapshot. Paul says, together, we're God's family. Look at at the end of verse 19, last phrase. He says that, that we're now fellow members of God's household. Members of God's household. Christ followers, once you surrender to Christ, he not he not only gives you the privilege to start calling God Father, but you start calling fellow Christ followers brother and sister, and it's true, you're part of this family. And there's this caregiving that extends to fellow family members. And one of the most obvious places that happens at Christ Community Church is in our community groups. You know, some 300 groups. There are men's groups and women's groups and couples groups and singles groups. In a community group yet? You know, this is where the love is shown and felt, where family life happens. I I lead a men's community group on Wednesday morning, and I look at the group, and externally speaking, there's a fair amount of diversity there. I mean, seven guys, but, you know, we got everything from a, you know, patent lawyer with an IT company who's got young kids at home, including preschoolers, uh, to to an Ethiopian architect. I'm not making this up. Uh, who's got teenage kids to a bald-headed pastor with grandkids. How about that? But in spite of the diversity, there is a love among these brothers in Christ. And you could see it all week long as we exchange texts with each other. Somebody finishes a plumbing project at home, and we're all, yay, way to go. Somebody's got a prayer need, and we're all on our knees for that brother. In a community group. Third picture, snapshot Paul paints is that together we're God's temple. Together we're God's temple. The the last few verses of today's passage describe how Christ followers are all building blocks that are getting cemented together by God so that we we could become a temple in which God lives by his spirit. Now you've heard before that we're temples of the Holy Spirit and we tend to think of that in a very individualistic way but most often in the New Testament it's a reference to our corporate togetherness we are the temple of the Holy Spirit together. Now the temple in Old Testament times was the center of corporate worship and that's what happens at Christ Community Church at our weekend services. You know, every weekend we lift up one big corporate wave of praise to God. We sing his praise You know, corporately, we rub shoulders with each other. We encourage you, get to know the people in your zone. Most of us sit in the same place 95% of the time. Okay, so have you gotten to know the name of the person who always sits about three seats down or the row behind you? Mix it up. We're here corporately, together. We're on the same hockey team. You know, thank you, God, for our zone leaders who helped to make that kind of interaction possible. And together we celebrate stuff like communion. That's what we did last weekend. Together we celebrate stuff like baptism. That's what we did today. You you don't do this on your own. Even if you're watching right now on our live stream, you're not doing church. This is church. 
Okay, so if you're sick or you're traveling and you do the live stream thing, great. But let me tell you, you need to be here in the body of Christ where church is happening, where we participate together as the temple of the Holy Spirit. What's our identity in Christ? Our identity is united. We once were alienated. We were alienated from God, and that led to alienation from other people. But when we surrendered to Christ, he reconciled us to God by his cross, and that's been leading to reconciliation with other people. Maybe some people we gotta, we got to get reconciled to before the day's out or the week's out. And then it allows us to join together, to participate together in what God's doing in our lives. I'm going to ask you to pray together with me. Across our four campuses, as we wrap up today's service, in just a moment, your campus pastors will come and close with a word of benediction. But I want to pray for you, and I, I want to say, if you've never surrendered to Christ, what we've been talking about is just, it's not true of you yet. There's a before picture, but there's, there's no after picture. You're, you're on the alienated side of the equation, distant from God and from others. And I invite you today... Do what all those people who got baptized, do what they've done. There came a point in time when they surrendered their lives to Christ, and you could do that right now. You could say, Lord Jesus Christ, I understand that when you died on the cross, you did it to pay the penalty of sin, my sin. I know the penalty is death because I'm separated from the giver of life. So, Jesus, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for dying for me. Can you say that to him right now? Can, can you say to the Lord Jesus, I want you to reconcile me to God. And I want to begin to follow you as the king of my life and learn how to reconcile relationships with other people. Put your hope and your trust in him right now. You tell him in your own words, but make that decision from your heart. And if you're a Christ follower already, let, let me ask are you oblivious to the people around you who feel alienated? Do you walk through life as part of a majority group, totally unaware that there are people who feel left out, people who feel on the outside looking in, at your school, at your workplace, in your neighborhood? And beyond that, are there people that you feel alienated from because there's some hostility between the two of you? Do you know that God reconciled you to himself in order that you could be reconciled to others. He doesn't want that bitterness to continue. Can you ask God right now, God help me to reconcile these broken relationships? And then lastly, if you're a Christ follower who's been standing on the sidelines, you're not in the hockey game yet. Would you say to God, God, I want to discover what it means to be united, not just in theory, but in practice. I, I want to know what it feels like to be teammates with other Christ followers. Lord God, I want to thank you for your word. It always convicts us of where we've strayed from your path, and it brings us back. And I pray for humble hearts to apply what we've learned today in Jesus' name. Amen.